We have a visitor that is going to be teaching you this morning. Her name is Janie Stevens, and she is the resident for women's ministry at the Dallas campus. So um, she's going to come up here and talk to us this morning about um, our next, about manna. Okay. Thank you, Janie. Thank you. Alrighty. Actually, before I start, I might say a real quick prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for bringing us here, Lord. I thank you for the provision of your word that you've given to us, Lord, that we may know you more. And I pray that you would just um, watch over us today. Speak through me, Lord. Let it be your words coming through me, not my own, Lord. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, me included. Continue teaching us all um, as we go through this lesson, Lord. We thank you for your beautiful word, and we thank you for your son and uh, your love for us. So we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so last weekend, I um, got the opportunity to spend some time with my nieces and um, nephew, and they're a lot of fun. Um, They love all the Pixar movies, you know, like cars and planes and anything that's Pixar. They love it, which, and I do too, but I'm always kind of kidding with them and, and, and telling them that they need to expand their horizons and they need to watch some of the classics. Which, by classics, I'm referring to the Disney movies that I watched when I was little. So, like, you know, Pocahontas, uh, Little Mermaid, classic, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, all of the above. And, so, and they literally, they, they think of those as, like, from the Dark Ages. They cannot get over the fact that they're just, like, flat cartoons, and they're, like, 2D and not 3D. And so, anyway, so last weekend, I brought Aladdin with me, and I made them sit down and, and watch it with me. And I think that they secretly liked it. But as we were watching that movie, if you all recall or, or know the story of Aladdin, so Aladdin is, he's a poor peasant boy, and he meets Jasmine, the princess, and she has just snuck out of the castle. She's never been outside of the castle walls. And so she's kind of, she's just snuck out, so she's experiencing new freedom, a whole new world, and she's realizing that, <laughs> that um, <laughs> yes, yes, quite literally, um, and she's realizing that life outside of the castle walls is a rough go. And so her and Aladdin, they team up, and, and all of a sudden they um, are running into all these dangerous scenarios. Uh, you know, like the, the castle guards are chasing after them and, and all this stuff. And so Aladdin... He's always confident that he's going to protect Jasmine and he's going to take care of her. But this is kind of a running theme throughout the movie. He first needs her to trust him. And so in every new kind of dangerous scenario, he always asks her, do you trust me? And she is always hesitant. She's like, I don't know. I just met you. And then he always asks her a second time, do you trust me? And at this point in time, it's quite suspenseful, like people are banging on the door, the, the castle guards or whatever. And so he always asks her, do you trust me? And then finally she always says, yes, okay. And then they, you know, jump on a magic carpet ride or something. And so, but he always needed her to trust him because it, they maybe had to go through some risky things to avoid the main danger. And so he always asked that question, do you trust me? And so I mentioned that because this question is essentially the same question that the Lord asks over and over again of the Israelites throughout this passage. And it's also the same question that the Lord asks of us over and over again throughout our life. Do you trust me? 
Do you trust me when you are in the wilderness and you have nowhere to turn? Do you trust that I love you? Do you trust that I'm guiding you, that I am protecting you, that I will get you through to the promised land? I will complete the good work that I have begun within you. Do you trust me? And so today, how God asks this question of his people, of us and the Israelites, he uses tests. And in this lesson, there are essentially two tests outlined for us. Uh, The first test is the test of thirst, chapter 15, verse 22 through 27. And the second test is the test of hunger, chapter 16. So, but before we uh, jump into the tests, we need to remember where we have come from. So, Last week, big lesson, God rescued and redeemed the Israelites from the bondage of Egyptian slavery through the crossing of the Red Sea. He drowned all their enemies, the Egyptians. And then once the Israelites made it safely to the other side, they essentially made their statement of faith in chapter 14, verse 31. They said that they feared the Lord and put their trust in him. And so now it's time for them to start their new life of freedom with God. He is with them. He is leading them uh, in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He's leading them to the promised land, and they are now to walk with God. But they will soon find out that there is a learning curve to walking with God. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so they must learn how to walk with God, how he operates and what he expects of them. And so that's why I've titled today's message, Learning to Walk with God. And uh, if it hasn't fully registered to you yet, we are in the same boat as the Israelites. Those of us who are Christians, we have been delivered and redeemed and freed from our slavery of sin, uh, slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are now making our way to the promised land, to heaven. The, The moment you were saved, you didn't just go straight to heaven, as great as that would have been. But we are still here on earth walking with God, living life, and life is hard. There are many wilderness moments in life. So from today's lesson, we will learn that God lovingly ordains and uses the wilderness moments of life to teach us that he is dependable and trustworthy. God lovingly ordains and uses the wilderness moments of life to teach us that he is dependable and trustworthy. There is a purpose behind every wilderness moment, behind every difficulty, So, okay, starting out, we find ourselves in chapter 15, verse 22. The Israelites are ready to go. They are moving out from the Red Sea. And at this point in time, I'm thinking that the Israelites were probably thinking, hey, wow, we've got the God of the universe on our side. He just split the Red Sea in two. He also just destroyed the Egyptians through the plagues on our behalf. It should be smooth sailing from here on out. I mean, I think that they were probably kind of expecting continued abundance and continued miracles and comfort and safety and satisfaction all throughout uh, on their way to the promised land. I, I probably would have been thinking that, actually, because many times when we have the opportunity to enjoy abundance from the Lord, it's very easy, if we don't watch ourselves, to begin to expect that that abundance is our own personal right, and that is wrong thinking. But Nonetheless, I believe that that's probably what the Israelites were thinking at this point in time. So they move out from the Red Sea, high expectations, being led by God, and they go into the desert of Shur, headed south in the direction of Mount Sinai. So now I brought a map uh, with me, um, and we touched on this concept. I don't know if y'all can all the way see that. I'll explain it. Um, We touched on this concept a little last week, but it's worth noting again. Okay, so the Israelites, they're headed to the Promised Land, and on this map, the Promised 
land is in the top right-hand corner where, where it says like Beersheba, if you can read that. Egypt is on the left. And when they set out from the Red Sea, that green line is, is their route. They, so they go, God leads them due south. So they're essentially going in the exact opposite direction of, of where the Lord ultimately ends for them, or intends for them to end up. And one kind of interesting historical tidbit, so the Roman general Titus, he marched his army several, you know, on down the road in history. Uh, he marched his army from Egypt to the Gaza Strip, so this exact um, trek that the Israelites essentially need to make. It took him and his army just five days to make that trek. And if you know anything about the Israelites' time in the desert, it ends up taking them 40 years to do this otherwise five-day trek. So, I mean, either God has the worst sense of direction ever, or or he's up to something. And I'm willing to bet it's, it's the second option. Okay, so they're headed the wrong way in the desert. Great. And then on top of that, it's not... It's now been not one, not two, but three days of wandering in the desert, and they can't find water. And so this is a little disconcerting. I mean, they are, again, with the God of the universe, he could have very easily and immediately provided them with water, something that they needed. Water is essential for life. They're in the desert. There's supposedly like two million of them. They have children, livestock. They need water. This is a legitimate concern. And so finally, they come to Mara, and they see that there's water. And I can imagine them bending down to, to drink the water. They're dying of thirst, and it's going to be so refreshing. And then they find it's bitter, and they can't drink the water. So what a huge letdown. I mean, this is the first of many straws that break the camel's back for the Israelites. They had high expectations of comfort and safety and satisfaction now that they were walking with God. But instead, they've been sorely disappointed. Instead of being comfortable, safe, and satisfied, they find themselves exhausted, dying of thirst, and with nowhere to turn. So what is going on? And I'm thinking that pretty much everyone in this room and beyond can probably relate. You know, God, why is this so hard? You know that my husband needs a job to provide for our family. Or, Lord, why is my marriage so difficult and, and on the verge of falling apart? Or, Lord, why am I still single? I've been praying for a godly husband for years, decades. Why have you not provided? Or, you know, a teenage son or daughter who has, was raised in the church has completely turned from the Lord. Why, Lord? Or, Lord, why haven't you given me children? I, I, I keep miscarriage after miscarriage. I, why, Lord, have you not provided? The, the list goes on and on. I mean, life is, is full of hard times and disappointments. And so as Christians, what are we to make of this? Well, God gives us a little bit of a hint here in verse 25. It says that there he, God, tested them. So God tests his people. God's tests are God's way of asking us, do you trust me? Just like Aladdin. (laughs) Uh, Do you trust me? If so, okay, great. Here is your opportunity to live it out. So again, remember, chapter 14, verse 31, the Israelites essentially made their declaration of faith. This is after the crossing of the Red Sea. It says there that the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. So they've made essentially their statement of faith. Now they must put their faith into action. And that's what God's tests are designed for. God's tests give us the opportunity to exercise and use and really kind of vindicate our faith, make it, see if it's the real deal. And so God's tests are all about the heart. 
not so that he can find out what's in our heart. God is all-knowing. He already knows what's in our heart. He knows the wickedness that's in our heart. But God's tests reveal to ourselves what is in our own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows it, and he wants to make it known to us so that we can then come humbly to him in desperate dependence, acknowledging our brokenness, repenting of our sin, that he may then heal our hearts. And indeed, verse 26, God does say, I am the Lord who heals you. Now here, he was promising Israel physical healing, which we are not promised physical healing. But God is in the process of spiritually healing us, of taking our weak faith and making it strong, of growing us up into spiritual maturity. He's in the process of sanctifying us. And so sanctification, it refers to the Christian's progressive growth in holiness and conformity to the image of Christ. And all throughout this earthly life, we are, uh, as we are walking with God, we are in the process of being sanctified. And God specifically uses these wilderness moments in our lives to help us progress and grow, to become more like Christ. God never wastes hardship. So when we find ourselves in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of hardship and disappointments and shattered dreams, these wilderness moments, what, how are we to respond? Well, we're to follow the example of Moses. He goes the way of faith. He puts his faith into action. He first cries out to God in prayer, and then he follows God's orders without questioning God. Because let's face it, God's solution is kind of weird. He just, he just tells Moses to throw a piece of wood into the bitter water. But sure enough, it works. By miracle, Moses throws the piece of wood into the water and immediately turns from bitter to sweet. And the Israelites can now drink the water. So uh, Moses' faith is seen in his willingness to do what God commanded him to do without understanding why or how it would work. He simply trusted, and then he simply obeyed God. God doesn't want his people to just believe in him. He wants his people to believe him. We are called um, to demonstrate our dependence upon God through prayer, and then we are called to obey his word without hesitation or question. Do you do that? Do you take God at his literal word? God knows us and and he loves us intimately and his commands are best for us. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Or also Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or same chapter, verse 32, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. So don't fall for the temptation that says that God does not have our best interest at heart when he gives us certain commands to follow. That is a lie from Satan. We are to take God at his literal word. That is the way of faith. And so then also now in regards to prayer, Moses' prayer, you may be thinking, well, okay, Moses prayed and then his prayer was immediately answered by God. I on the other hand, have been praying for this thing, whatever it is, for, for years maybe, and God has not seemed to answer. So, so what's the deal? Okay, well, there are three ways that God can answer our prayers, two of which are highlighted in this passage. One, he may change our situation, which he did at Mara. He turned the bitter water into sweet. Two, he may give us something else, which he did at Elam. He brought the Israelites to a completely new watering well. 
or three, he may simply choose to give us the grace that we need to bear with our difficulties. And that third option, most of the time, is probably the most difficult, but it's also the option that produces the most lasting spiritual growth, and that is ultimately what the Lord is aiming for. The third option is when God doesn't give us what we want, necessarily, or maybe even even what we think that we need, but he gives us more of himself and more of his grace. But no matter what, in all three options, God is always gracious, always faithful, and always provides. In fact, a principle that we can take to heart from this is that trusting God means looking beyond what we can see and looking at the character of God. Trusting God means looking beyond what we can see and looking at the character of God. So I have a friend, a really good friend, and she, um, for years, her and her husband always uh, struggled with infertility. And, And now she is past the age of being able to have children and she was never able to have children. And, and she, it still remains a, a, a deep difficulty and struggle. I was talking with her last week. I was just asking her to make sure it's okay to, to use her life as an illustration in the sermon. And she was just saying, she's like, yeah, you know, I've been thinking over the past 35 to 40 years of my life. And she said, this thing, this infertility is still the defining thing in my life that always tempts me to fear that my life has been lived in vain. And so it's still such a huge struggle for her. But I I wanted to highlight her life as an illustration because of the display of God's grace in her life. So she uh, holds a position in, in another Bible study here in Dallas. She is the area supervisor over the entire children's department of this Bible study. And so the Lord has entrusted to her the spiritual lives and the biblical teaching and training of literally thousands of little children throughout Dallas. And so, no, he didn't answer her prayer exactly as she thought or planned or hoped, but he so tenderly and personally provided for her in a way, giving her an opportunity to influence thousands of children. And she is doing wonderful work in the lives of children. And so no, her life for sure has not been lived in vain. The The glory of the Lord is proclaimed through her life on a daily basis. And so he remains trustworthy and good, even, even in difficult times. He is still working and doing marvelous things. Trusting God means looking beyond what we can see and looking at the character of God. So how do you respond in your wilderness moments? Do, do you recognize that your wilderness moments, they aren't just random difficulties that make life hard. They are actually moments ordained by God, just as, just as God led the Israelites into the wilderness. He also leads us into our wilderness moments. And he, he brings us to these moments that we may have the opportunity to trust and obey him in new ways and see him come through for us every time. They are opportunities for you and I to see God's love for us in action. So he is over every circumstance of your life. He is ordained and is using and redeeming this very difficulty, whatever you're thinking of right now. He will ultimately use it for your good and for his glory. Okay, so moving on to the second division. The Israelites have received 
abundant refreshment at Elam, and it's now time to move out. They come to the desert of sin, which, FYI, that name has no connection to our English word sin. It's connected to the word Sinai, so don't try to read anything into that. Um, It's now been about a month since they've left Egypt, and lo and behold, I mean, we don't get very far, and they start grumbling again. (laughs) And so this time, it's because they can't find any food, which again is a legit concern. But this time now, they start reminiscing about their time in Egypt, about the pots of meat that they had, and they they ate all the food that they wanted, or so they say. (laughs) I'm kind of thinking, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that that is probably not an accurate depiction of what life was truly like for them in Egypt. I mean, they've all of a sudden, in one month's time, forgotten about their bondage and slavery and, and beatings and how they cried out day and night because of their misery. And it seems crazy to us that they would ever even entertain the thought of going back, doesn't it? Or I don't know, maybe maybe it doesn't. Maybe you and I actually are more like the Israelites than we would care to admit, and I think that that is probably true. There's a song uh, by a Christian artist, her name is Sarah Groves. The song is called Painting Pictures of Egypt, and it's all about how we... Uh, Like the Israelites, we paint pictures of our past circumstances and seasons of life. In our imagination and recollection, the past always seems so good and, and easy. If only I could go back to that time in my life. Those were the good old days. Because the past is known, and it's familiar, and it's comfortable. Unlike the future, which is unknown and seems so scary and and hard and unfamiliar and uncomfortable. So the third verse of this song, it says it like this. The past is so tangible. I know it by heart. Familiar things are never easy to discard. I was dying for some freedom, but now I hesitate to go. I am caught between the promise and the things I know. So does this describe where you are right now, your wilderness moment? Are you caught between the promises of God, which are just far enough out of your grasp and out of your reach, and then versus the familiar, comfortable things that you know by heart from experience and you don't want to part with? I mean, does everything in your life right now just seem so overwhelming and scary and uncomfortable and unknown, and all you want to do is go back to how things were because you're used to that. It's comfortable. It's, it's what you know. Being overwhelmed is actually a good place to be, as uncomfortable as it is, because when you are overwhelmed, that is when you, are, you finally acknowledge your helpless and desperate state, and you realize you are not as self-sufficient as you thought you were. And that is ripe ground for turning to the Lord in dependence upon him if we will only do that. And that's actually where the Israelites are right now. They do realize that they are helpless and that they are done for if they don't find food. But they still have yet to learn to trust the Lord. And so now they're getting a little panicky and they just want to run back to Egypt because that's what they know. And so, but here we see the Lord do something amazing in his grace and mercy without them ever even thinking of of turning to him in dependence and prayer. He provides for them anyways. He promises he will rain down bread from heaven for them. This is a free gift to the people. They did nothing to earn this. And so, but this promise and provision, it does come with another test in uh, verse four of chapter 16. So the Lord says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. 
On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So he's given them both a promise and a command or a law to follow here. So what the Lord is doing here, he's, he's training his people. He's giving them these little kind of mini laws to see if they will obey him in the little things. And this is all preparation for when he's going to reveal his full law to them a few chapters down the road in Exodus 20. So these are not just tests to see if they can follow instructions. These are tests to see if their hearts are inclined to be his covenant people. In this particular test, the fact that they are only to gather enough food for each day, it cuts right to the heart of who the Israelites are and what they've always known. The Israelites at this time um, are an agricultural people. And so I don't know a whole lot about agriculture, but I do know that um, farmers never just harvest enough food to meet that one day. Because if you did that, you would eventually run out of food because no crop or animal produces food every day. I did used to work for a cheese factory, actually, so I do know a little bit. Um, and we we sold goat, goat's milk cheese, and goats don't produce milk in the wintertime. So in the summertime, we would have to gather more milk than was needed so that we'd have enough milk on hand that our production would remain consistent throughout the winter months. So that's just smart. Um, and so the Lord here is asking the Israelites to go totally against their natural tendency, what makes perfect sense to them and seems smart and logical and just plain good practice. And instead, he's asking them to simply trust that he will come through on his promise to provide. And so this is a really big step of faith for the Israelites. And the Lord makes the same requests of us. Every day, the Lord asks us to trust him, to give us what we need for that day. No more, no less. Give us this day our daily bread. However, in addition, though, if you notice, the Israelites, they still had a role to play. They still had to go outside of their tents and gather up the manna. The manna didn't just fall from the sky and land in their mouth. So they, so, um, so the Lord will provide for our needs, but we must act and obey him as well. He, he, he will give you the words to say when you're sharing the gospel with a friend, but you must first speak. And he has given us the provision of his word, the Bible, but we must take time and effort to study the Bible and apply it to our lives. We don't learn the Bible through osmosis. Um, so I got a pretty good lesson on the concept of daily bread as I was preparing for this message. I, I tried to start uh, my preparation pretty early because, I, well, I don't know if y'all, so again, I'm in the residency program here at Watermark. I don't know if y'all know anything about that, but there's a lot of work. <laughs> we'll just say it's a lot of like schoolwork and Bible study work and everything. So I knew that I would have a lot of work just going on. And so I tried to start preparation for this sermon pretty early. Um, so a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday, I had a completely free day, which is few and far between. So I thought, okay, great. I'm just going to work all day on, on and try to get this sermon really kind of wrapped up. And so um started out well. I, w- I, w- I was kind of moving right along. But then a few hours into it, I, I hit a wall. I mean, just like a complete writer's block. And I couldn't figure out the next direction that I wanted to go with the sermon. Um, but I stayed at my computer and really tried to crank it out. And, but I was going nowhere. And I was so frustrated because I was thinking, Lord, I, this is one of my only completely free days. I need to get as much work accomplished today because I have a lot of other work to do. 
And then I realized, oh, I'm writing a sermon about manna. And the lesson being that God provides only what is needed for each day, no more, no less. And so the Lord was teaching me, hey, I'm not going to give you all the understanding of this passage um, all at once. There's no trust required in that. You have to trust that I will be faithful to provide you with just enough understanding of the passage with each new day. And that ultimately, I will provide you with all that you need in order for you to be able to properly teach this passage come November 11th. And and so he will give us no more than we need on a given day, but he will also give us no less than we need on a given day. So again, example, today, I need more power and grace on a day like today when I'm teaching a sermon than I need on a day when I'm just sitting at home watching TV. And so the Lord He gives according to the needs of the day. Um, If you have a greater task to accomplish in that day, he will give you the power to accomplish that task. Just as the Israelites, they they gathered as much as they needed or as little as they needed. But he always gives us enough power and grace that we need um, to accomplish what he has called us to do that day and what he has called us to, who he has called us to be that day. Um, so, um, what needs do you have right now? Be thinking about that, um, and trust the Lord with your needs. So wrapping up, um, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter eight, we're given really kind of a commentary of this episode of scripture, the events of Exodus 16. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, just a little background, it's 40 years down the road from where we are in in Exodus right now. The Israelites have reached the border of the promised land and Moses gives a series of sermons to the Israelites to remind them of God's law and God's faithfulness and to prepare them to enter the promised land. So Deuteronomy 8, uh, 2 through 7, this is describing the Lord's intent behind his testing of his people here in Exodus 16. So I'm just going to read it and, and really listen to these words. Okay, so remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. So if you are in a time of need, if you are in a wilderness moment, a difficulty, Know that the Lord has brought you there for the ultimate purpose of doing good for you in the end. The Lord is not bringing unnecessary trouble into your life. He doesn't have something against you. He's not disappointed in you. The book of Hebrews says the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. Do you know who else was led into the wilderness? God's one and only beloved son, Jesus Christ. In the book of Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, heaven bursts open and the spirit of God descends and says, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And then the very next line says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He was led by the spirit into the desert. And it goes on to say, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, 
tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does that sound familiar? Because I just read it to you in Deuteronomy 8. (laughs) So whatever wilderness moment you are going through right now, have gone through, will go through, Jesus knows and can perfectly sympathize with you. He's been there. And on top of that, he successfully came through the wilderness, perfectly obeying the Father in every way. And now he offers his perfect obedience and righteousness to us in exchange for our sin when we place our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. So Jesus' life is not just an example that we are to try to follow and live by. If that were the case, that would be a crushing weight to try to live under. Yes, Jesus Christ is our example, but even more than that, he's our substitute. Jesus Christ is our provision. He is the bread of life. He is our sustenance. He is the one to whom this whole Exodus 16 chapter points through the picture of the manna, God's provision. So when we don't perfectly trust and obey God in our wilderness moments, when we panic like the Israelites and grumble and want to run away from our troubles, we can know that we are nonetheless loved and accepted by God because he has made provision for us. We have been freed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are now clothed in his righteousness and perfect obedience by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says it like this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He is the Lord who heals you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this magnificent lesson. There's, there's so much more that, that could be talked about and, and, and discussed. And Lord, your, your word is infinitely deep. Lord, we thank you so much for providing for us for your love, that you are a provision. You have saved us from our sins. We thank you so very much. Um, I, I pray that you would bless the discussion on this lesson, Lord. Give, give us all more understanding as we continue looking at your word. And I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.